Hello, and welcome to Movie Challenge Accepted. I'm Jason. And I am Arco. And we are back. It is a new year. It is 2022. We're looking at a full 52 weeks, God willing. <laughs> God willing. <laughs> of making each other watch movies we wouldn't otherwise normally watch. And for those of you that are new here, um, Arco and I thought it would be a good time to kind of explain what the whole conceit of the podcast is, right? Right, absolutely. Go ahead. So this was your idea, and it's basically... Mm-hmm. Arco likes a certain kind of movie. Marvel yes. films, Fast and Furious. Um, the, fun. The, the real staples of the last 10 years. Yeah, you know, quality, quality uh, films. <laughs> um, and, you know, just kind of fun, over-the-top action summer blockbuster movies. The same movies that basically the whole country and the whole world likes. Yes, absolutely. And uh, Jason seems to like movies that uh, he'd rather, uh, that are perfectly... Uh, good to read uh he, he doesn't mind subtitles in the slightest bit do you jason yeah. uh no i'm not afraid of subtitles and as uh forgive me uh boon uh oh, the director of parasite which won best picture in i think 2020 oh yes uh, uh, I, can, I'm sorry. Film. I, I have no idea who that is i apologize um uh, i want to say uh I the forgive me I can't remember his name but as he said in his Oscar ex- acceptance speech don't be afraid of a couple of inches of subtitles on the bottom of your screen. <laughs> yeah, well, un- unfortunately so for, for me I just feel it takes away from looking at what's on the screen if I have to look at the bottom of it all the time. But that's just me. Right. And the whole idea here is that I I would never have watched any of the Marvel movies. If you and I didn't get together and do this podcast. Right. Well, I mean, uh, of course, it's not just Marvel. There are a few other movies that we've already gone through that I don't think you ever really would have uh, watched on your own. And, and of course, as I always say, none of the films that you've given me, uh, five out of the uh, four of the five, I've never even heard of. So uh, it's uh, it's been it's been great so far. I hope you've been enjoying it as much as I have. I really have. And the whole and you know, the whole idea here is to expose ourselves to movies that we wouldn't ordinarily watch and to right. hopefully, right. you know, expand our horizons. I and I feel that it's been uh it's been a success on my end. I think so too. The whole like you, you know, the we don't want people coming here to shit on movies that they don't like or we don't want people coming here to hopefully hopefully the the people that are subscribing are seeing the movies that you challenge me with you know right. uh mm-hmm. captain america the avengers movies to, uh, right. fast and furious mm-hmm. and then they're just going to wait around and they're going to listen <laughs> to the discussion about the movies i'm giving you and uh and a few people have uh, reached out some of our listeners have reached out and have said that they themselves have uh picked up the films that you've challenged me with because a lot of the people that uh, I know share the same tastes as I do. Uh, you're you're just an outlier. Yeah, no, and I realize that, and I'm glad that uh, you know we're we're exposing ourselves to s- some movies we might not otherwise watch. So, yeah, yes. having gotten that out of the way, now if you're new here, now you know what we do. Right. And for this week, for the first movie challenge of the year 2022, right. you challenged me with the Avengers: Age of Ultron. Yes. The second Joss Whedon Avengers movie. And I challenged you, and I think we're going to start with this movie. Yes. I challenged you with a classic New York City movie, oh, the yeah. original oh, Taking yeah. of Pelham 123. And it, and it is New York City through and through. It is early 70s New York City here. And if anybody knows what that was like 
honestly, the very first three, uh, first one or two minutes of this film, you can smell the city through the television. I mean, you, it, it just comes it's, rushing it's back smell. to you. It's not a good smell at all. I mean, if you can imagine the hottest day in, in, in the subway system, this is what it smells like. It, watching this television, watching this show, um, this movie on uh, on the big screen the other day brought back all these memories to me because I remember. I remember New York City when it wasn't uh, what it became, you know, when it was, you know, when Times Square wasn't the glitz and glamour that people actually came from another country to come see, you know. Um, So I remember what that was like. And this movie brought that back to me. Yeah. People that did not grow up in New York in the 80s and late 70s forget or they don't know because they were never exposed to it. No, No, absolutely not. That Manhattan was a, a sketchy place. Oh, and, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And before Times Square was Disneyfied and Bubba the, Gumped and the M&M store was the WF Cafe. Yeah. <laughs> when, when, when it was just nothing but triple uh, X porn theaters right. and hookers right. and sketchy bars, you, you had like a certain grittiness to New York. And. Right. I think this movie, there's a lot of great movies that came out of that time. Uh, Taxi Driver, Later, mm-hmm. which yeah. was, I think, mm-hmm. 1980. Yeah. Um, taking a Pelham 123, the, the original French Connection. And, 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 the, and it's, it's funny that you're bringing up these films because another one that I would have uh, thought of also uh, when I watched it a long time ago is uh, uh, Serpico, French Connection, like you said. That's the type of films that I thought this was going to be like. And those films never really uh really called to me so i never really went out of my way to watch them of course i knew of this film because there was a remake uh, with um, denzel washington and john travolta back in 2009 2010 i never saw that one Did either not see it yeah me neither um however uh th- that's what that's what i thought this film was like it was like those other early 70s films and i couldn't have been more wrong this film was it, it it was not like that at all, uh, Jason. Can well, you tell me what what you thought this film was like? <laughs> well, no, no, I'm I'm more curious about. You said that you, that this didn't kind of give you the same vibe as, as something like Serpico or some the of these first, other city movies. No, it, it definitely didn't because there's one uh, one outstanding part in this film, one outstanding feature in this film that those other films did not have, and was it Walter uh, Matthau? <laughs> Walter Matthau, of course, <laughs> but. It's. It was the. I guess the only word I could really use is the comedy in this film. It was. It was subtle, but blunt at the same time. I. I did not know. I did not know whether I should have been laughing as as out loud as I was at some of the things that were being said. But I was. I caught myself laughing at almost everything that Walter Matthau was saying. Through most of this film, he was he was sardonic. He was a wise ass. Him and Jerry Stiller kind of like working off each other on the mics. It it was it was genius, and it really lightened the mood of what could have been an overly serious type of film. Yeah, and I think the knock from what I read uh, reviews regarding the the remake with John Travolta and Denzel Washington, I think the knock on that was that it lost a sense of that biting cynical new york city attitude oh absolutely yeah and that sense of comedy yeah from from walter matthau who starts off by by showing around these um uh, japanese uh 
I'm, I'm not going to say businessmen. I'm sorry. I believe no, they, they were. They, they, they were, were from subway the Tokyo people. Metro system. Yeah, ter- Tokyo Metro system. Showing them around. He doesn't really want to do it, but he's giving them a tour, speaking to them in English. They're not saying anything to them. So he he goes around telling people that eh, it's all right. Don't worry about. It. They don't speak a word English. And he goes, all right, this way, dummies. <laughs> And yeah, it, turn, it, it turns out that they speak perfect English when they then they leave him. They say, thank you very much for the tour. It was great. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very much got that. It captures that sense of New York City attitude that I think. I think New Yorkers who were living through that time when crime was raging, the city had no money. Mm-hmm. You know, Ford very famously said regarding a bailout of New York, Ford mm-hmm. to city drop dead. There's right. that famous, uh, yeah. I think it was a New York Post headline. Yeah. Yeah. But there's that sense of like, w- this is New York, fuck you. And, oh, yeah. And this, and, is, this is what you're going to get. Yeah, and that's what you get from, from Ben Stiller's father, Jerry Stiller, and, yeah. and from Walter Matthau. What, Matthau playing what I think is probably one of the most realistic New York City cops in, but, in screen well, history. You would, definitely, you would definitely know that. I mean, it, it's, they're cynical, they're wise-asses. They, it, it's like they're tired, but you know they still go about their jobs. Uh, the first time you see Jerry Stiller, he's reading a paper, doesn't want to deal with anything that Walter Matthau is, dealing, is, uh, is telling him. You know, So uh, it, it, it's like... Uh, like they're just going about their day, but uh, it, it, their interaction I thought was very good. Yeah, and and it, I think they do a pretty good job of capturing the nature of a New York City municipal employee, which oh. I was for twenty years. <laughs> and you know, everyone that's working the 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 MTA, which was separate back then. Right. Here's a little bureaucratic uh, glimpse behind the curtain: mm-hmm. is years ago when this film. When the book was written, the book came out, I think, in 1970, and then it was made into the movie. Right. The New York City Transit Police was its own agency. This okay. is before. Eventually, they merged, and they became part of the NYPD. But back then, the, the Transit Police and the, and the City Police, which worked above ground, mm-hmm. were two completely separate agencies. Right. They did not like each other. I can't imagine and, that they would. <laughs> and I, I think you get a sense of like the from from the even from the MTA uh, employees, not necessarily the cops, but the civilians, uh, the the women that are working the the, the mics and they're oh. they're trying to keep the trains online. And there's this you get this sense of like all they care about is making sure every train gets from it's 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 a starting point to its mm-hmm. terminus and goes back the other way stays on time all the lights on the giant board that they're mm-hmm. watching they're all moving along they're always moving beyond that they don't give a shit they, they don't want to oh. be bothered it is that new york attitude all i care about is getting through my day and having nothing happen and and you got that immediately when they're uh, when uh, well I mean let, let's get into the story real fast I mean sure that the whole the whole point of this film is that one of the subways was uh, hijacked by a, a group of men and uh, led by uh, uh, Robert Shaw as uh, Mr. Blue. Um, along with Mr. Green, Mr. Gray, and Mr. Brown. So if anybody ever wanted to know where Quentin Tarantino got the names of his characters for Reservoir Dogs, I would imagine that it w- that list starts and ends in this film. Um, do you, do yeah. you agree that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Yeah, no, he's, I think he's said that he, he's, he stole the conceit of the ca- naming the characters in Reservoir Dogs from this movie. Okay, okay, so there you go. I didn't even know that, but okay. So, uh, so they're... They're they're a group and they're uh, taking over this train because they want a sum total of 
one million, million dollars. <laughs> dollars. Uh, it's it's almost laughable, but whatever. A million dollars back then goes a long way. And uh, between the four of them, they take over. It's precise. It's clockwork. They get it done very very well. But of course, there's always that one person. In a, in a crew that has got that itchy trigger finger or he's got that mad dog quality to him that doesn't get, uh, you know, he, he's, uh, he's a loose cannon. So, and that would be Hector Elizondo's character in this. And, um, you know. Two, they, we, get, we get back-to-back weeks of Hector Elizondo. Yes. I, I always loved Hector Elizondo. And, and uh, he, uh, he was definitely bald in this film also. <laughs> yes. Although he looked better with the fake mustache. We're going to start a mustache. podcast examining <laughs> if, whether or not Hector Elizondo ever had hair. I, I, I don't think so. But uh, I, I thought that the uh, premise of it was fantastic because, well, you know, when, when uh, uh, Shaw's character, uh, a colonel apparently in the English army at some point, he... Uh, decided to call in his demands, they were like, are you kidding me? <laughs> You're stealing a train? What are you stealing a train for? And even then, the the person, the, the dispatcher that he's talking to is like, what are you talking about? Get off my train. I need to go back and forth. I need to get to the station. Get out of there. You right, know? Because, I, again, <laughs> it's, it's that classic New York City attitude where we don't believe anything. And yeah. even if you're telling us it's true, if we don't want to believe it, it's just going to be like, eh, go to hell. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> just, just, just get the train on. Get off the train and get over there. So it was, uh, they, they take over the train rather easily. The hostages... You know, don't really know what they're doing. I, I, I don't, don't really know what's going on until a couple of bullets start flying. Then they start getting scared, and I, I, I think that every single stereotype that could possibly be checked off was on that subway car. I mean, yeah, this this it, film it, would not it, yeah. be made in two thousand twenty-two. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, every single one. Um, but I mean, whatever. I mean, you got a little bit of a chuckle out of it, and. Um, I thought that, like I said, the premise was sound. I thought it was very well done how they did that, how they created the tension and the drama. But to intersperse that, that it, where underground is where all the tension was, and above ground you have, like you said, the cynicism of these uh, New York City workers who, you know, I mean, they're they're trying their best, but hey, if it doesn't work, okay, you know, that that's what you kind of got from it, from their kind of lighthearted. And lighthearted is probably not the right word, but it was kind of like, um, and what's the word I'm looking for when you kind of don't care? Yeah, I don't want to say an apathy towards yeah. it because Walter Matthau doesn't want anyone to get killed. Yeah, no, he goes out of his way to make sure that uh, you know nobody gets killed. But um, uh, but yeah. by the same token, no one is is grabbing their gun and saying no one's going to die on my watch. Yeah, there's, no, there's no, no sense of this ridiculous over-the-top Hollywood sense of heroism. Right. It's, these are, these are like, these are city employees that are paid at the time probably $20,000 a year to, to do a job. And exactly. And, and they're not, and they're, they're not looking to die for the, for, for any of these uh, companies that they're working for, any of the municipalities, like you said. Um, no. Yeah. I thought it was great where the, um, uh, one of one of the dispatchers or the person that's running one particular part of the subways, Kaz Dolowitz, and and you know, not only when you see him and he's talking to the the the, the um, uh, hijackers, yeah, he can't believe it. He 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 uh, he, he he blames his uh, newly employed uh, female. Um, 
uh, I guess she's a dispatcher, yeah. uh, blames her dispatcher. for whatever's going on because, you know, uh, as he said, yeah, broad shouldn't be working in the subways. You hear that a few times that women shouldn't be doing this or that. Um, that yeah, I, I believe Walter Matthau said something along the lines of uh, females being cops and, you know, that's not a good thing uh, is what he said. Yep. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, Lee Wallace as mayor. <laughs> I mean, well, <laughs> as a ringer, a ringer for, for Ed Koch, oh who I don't think, God, I, no. I can't remember if he was, if Koch was the mayor in 74. No, I know he w- no, he, he was wasn't in, yet, no, right? in the early 80s. He was the, he was the mayor of the 80s. Yeah, so, but Lee Wallace, a dead ringer for the future oh, mayor, Ed Koch. dead ringer. Oh my God, it was great. I, I mean, when I saw him, I'm like, yeah. how do they get Ed Koch in this movie? <laughs> yeah, oh. and also... Co- completely ineffectual essentially terrified of being the mayor oh absolutely yeah what are the people gonna say you know well not really manipulated but kind of driven by his uh his staff uh, lieutenant governor who kind of push him forward and and to try to get him to do the right thing here which and again the right thing that in their mind is to just pay the money is to pay the million dollars right right which, and part know, of uh, part of the backstory again yeah. in '74, and in part of the movie, is that the city doesn't have a million dollars, so they have a they have a fairly prolonged discussion about what mm-hmm. would be worse for the city: would it be to pay the million dollars and not have it, or would it be to lose the lives of these thirty or and twenty? They uh, had to take people. a vote. They had to take a vote. Yeah, and it came down to his wife, uh, Doris Roberts, from uh, Christmas Vacation, or Everybody Loves Raymond. Everybody loves her from there, uh, saying. You you know, you'll get at least one thing out of this. 18 votes. 18 votes. <laughs> hey, go that's do it. You, that's, you're guaranteed to get that. Yeah, so it's a very pragmatic was, wife of a New York City mayor. Oh, my God. I, he, he was one of the best mayors I've seen on, uh, on screen since uh, Ghostbusters. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, it's true, Your Honor. This man has no penis. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. You did, you did mention something that I wanted to touch on because a lot of the, the, the pieces and reviews, the modern day takes on this mm-hmm. film, mm-hmm. everyone references the, the awful gender and, and racial stereotypes, oh, yeah. Which, yeah. which they exist. Yeah, and it's a product of its time. Yes. But also, if you watch the movie closely, there are little nods and subversions to that sort of thing. You mentioned one already mm-hmm. where um, Walter Matthau thinks he's a fancy New York City police lieutenant, mm-hmm. and he's essentially talking smack about these four Japanese uh metro executives who are in town and then he gets made to look like a fool because guess what we speak english you stupid american we understood everything you said (laughs) so and and, and he he felt like he he looked like he had egg on his face yeah so he he gets that there's also Mm -hmm. a scene later on there's a couple other scenes there's a scene later on where the um inspector daniels uh played by julius harris the uh very intimidating black police inspector Mm -hmm. towards the end of the film Mathau, who has only communicated with him via the radio, and again, right. he's a he's a city police inspector. He's not transit, so they wouldn't work together. Mm-hmm. And when Mathau finally gets to the car to meet him, mm-hmm. he kind there's a moment where he says, "I'm Inspector Daniels," mm-hmm. and he's like, "Oh, I thought you'd be taller." Or taller, he did say taller. And there's a moment of recognition. <laughs> yeah, there's that moment of recognition where the inspector's like, "Yeah, I know exactly what you meant." And Mathau again kind of is like, "Oh." Yeah, yeah. Th- th- these guys are not out. afraid to put their uh, their foot in their mouths. Apparently, they, they 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 had no compunction about speaking first and dealing with the ramifications later. Well, I, I yeah, and I think the whole idea is that back then there would have been no ramifications. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. But yeah, um, ta- talking about like this being uh, the ability of this movie to build tension from a fairly contained setup. 
right? Yes. So yes. you have four uh, four terrorists, four mm-hmm. four hijackers mm-hmm. in one train or two train cars for most of it, but they essentially move everyone into one train car. Right, right. And so you have that going on, and then you have Walter Matthau and Jerry Stiller later on speaking into uh, microphones, into radios. Right, right. And for the majority of the movie, that's it. That's it. And yeah. Yeah. the ability of... Uh, of the the screenwriter Peter Stone and I'm mm-hmm. looking him up to see what else he's done. I don't know the name offhand, right. but the ability to build as much tension that they do from a very constrained premise, I thought was shocking. Oh, absolutely! I there was up until uh, the, um, the the last uh, five, uh, 10, 15 minutes of the film when there is basically a uh, run through the streets to get them the money or to find out where the train is going. Everything is pretty much underground or in the uh, in, in whatever office that Walter, Walter Matthau is. And, you know, you, the tension was building the entire time because it was also building with the... Um, with the with the uh, the hijackers themselves because they almost you know uh, they're, they're waiting for the money they, they're not sure if they're going to get the money Robert Shaw is very quiet he's very uh, he's uh, he's trying to be the leader of these men you know with these guns in their hands or to uh, basically have eighteen lives in his hands and he really didn't know where it was going to go and I, that's why the comedy even on the train at the time, kept on throwing me. And I didn't know whether I was supposed to be taking it seriously or not because it was so many lighthearted moments in this that took away a little bit of the drama. But for me, it made it a perfect action film. Yeah, because I think you need to balance out the sense of uh, of impending you know, the possibility of like impending death or that, that very ominous sense of like, hey, we're going to kill one passenger every minute until you bring us $1 million. Right. And there's a way to do this movie where it becomes a very somber, very morose affair. Mm-hmm. And I think the ability to be able to balance that with that sort of New Yorker's gallows humor mm-hmm. and exactly. that sense, exactly. that very palpable sense, even it, I think it's less so today. I haven't lived in the city for three years, but... Mm-hmm. I think in, in towards the end of my time there, I think it's less so now than it was then where there's this New York attitude of fuck you, we'll deal with anything. Well, and oh, oh, that, That's in plenty of movies straight through. You see that all the time. So when you see it like this uh, with, with, with a little bit of, uh, you know, even even the cops up on, um, uh, I'm sorry, to, he's, a, he's a famous character actor, you know, the heavyset uh, chi- uh, captain that's oh, talking the, to him. Yeah. Are you uh, talking about the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen? Yeah, yes. uh, <laughs> Kenneth McMillan. Yes, yes. I mean, he's like, you know, the things that he was saying, he's like, he's like, they're not going to pay a million dollars. Oh, my God. They're going to pay a million dollars? You know, he was kept on going back and forth and uh, trying to deal with the, you know, whatever press was there and people. And I, it, it was, uh, you know, the, the way that they put it together made the drama that much more palpable. And also, you know, in the end, because we've been conditioned to sort of expect twists in every one of these kinds of movies, right? Right, right So right. now the modern viewer is sitting there and you're expecting, oh my God, what's going to be the, how are they going to get out of this? What's the crazy escape that they've planned? And the crazy escape that they had planned is not that crazy. It's no. one of, uh, Martin Balsam mm-hmm. used to be a motorman for right. the transit, right. uh, Metro Transit Authority. Mm-hmm. He got fired mm-hmm. and he knows how to release the train from outside of the train right so right. after and they overcome get, the dead man switch yeah 
so they get the million dollars and he's able to overcome the dead the dead man switch and the whole idea is that they were going to send the train careening into battery park city or uh, battery park and they would make their escape by going up through one of the uh, emergency exits of course mathow being mathow who is again the most unassuming cop but yet at the same time the most realistic like more cops look like walter mathow than like jason statham um and the uh, that's nice. he figures yeah he figures out or he surmises what's going to happen and and they're able to to uh to kind of put an end to it and you know he ends up shooting and killing robert shaw uh but no he, you no, know, no 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 he doesn't oh no no i'm sorry you're right <laughs> no, you're right no, you're right no. i'm Which sorry fix my a, mistake for one me. of the one of the best scenes and i tell you the best way that uh, a villain if that's how you want to, you know, a villain. He is a he's a bad guy. Goes out. I mean, he basically he goes out by saying, "That's do, right." I, do they I, execute I totally. in this state? And yes. Walter Mountain goes, uh, "No, not right now." <laughs> he goes pity, and he puts his foot on the third rail and fries himself. I mean, yes. that to me recalls um, Michael Fassbender in in. Um, Inglorious Bastards. When he when he says to the German, he goes, "If I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out speaking the kings," and, and he shoots the guy in the freaking yeah. balls. So, I mean, yeah. that was that was great. I love that. I can't believe I forgot that. But yeah, no, it's and, okay. And also, the the other thing that we've kind of omitted is another another way that they they were able to plan a little bit of tension is uh, there's an undercover cop on the train, and that whole subplot never really oh, bears no, out. Nothing at all. I'm wondering. I'm wondering. I mean, if he does it was get shot. The, the undercover guy? does end up getting shot. Yeah, he does get shot. Exactly. Yeah. He, he does get shot. And it's the weirdest shooting I've ever seen. The man the man rolls uphill over uh, train tracks after he got shot. I mean, I, I mean, the bullet couldn't have forced him to, to move that way, but whatever. And uh, like you said, there wasn't much to it. Like, you knew he was on there. They knew he was on there, but nothing really came of it except, you know, to, at the end. But I think the fact that they're able to plant that early on mm-hmm. at least adds to everything that they're doing. We're like, oh man, what's what's the cop going to do? And again, this day and age, we would expect, you expect more from this kind of movie. And that's kind of why I wanted you to watch it. Well, it's, it's funny you say it, that because you've you mentioned that twice already, but we've, we've been uh, programmed, like you said. We've seen so many movies where there's going to be a twist. That, you, know, you know it's coming, you know it's going to come. But now we're watching films that came out 30, 40 years ago when they didn't have that twist. And it basically throws me off because that's what I'm waiting for. But they didn't either have that style of of um, um, storytelling back then or, or this particular film didn't have that. So I was waiting for something. And the way it ended was perfect, but I would not have thought it was going to be that way. Yeah, it's very much a, a, a more linear, straightforward sense of storytelling. Like that, we you don't have people playing with the sense of time like you have now with Christopher Nolan and mm-hmm. Steven Soderbergh does to to an extent. It, it's a much more traditional story being told. There's a beginning, yeah. there's a middle, there's an end, and there's and nothing wrong with that. I thought it was great. If you I, do it, I, yeah. if you do it well and you have great performances, I, I think you you end up with movies like this. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I also thought that. Um, for a point, for a short while anyway, it was almost like one of the first buddy cop films uh, out there. But, I mean, to a lesser extent, because they weren't really together. It wasn't like Riggs and Murtaugh, but, you know, it was basically Mathau and Stiller. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, there so. is there there is an element of, of that sort of uh, mm-hmm. dynamic between the two of them, and y- you know, for anyone, what what I hope for people to get out of the movies I give you is that maybe you sit there and you say, okay, I can I can stream this on uh, I don't even know where it's streaming right now, but I can you know watch this just just give it a go. Like my wife doesn't like watching movies that came out before. She was born like 1997. Okay, because she doesn't like the anachronistic dress or the way it looks. Like, there's a definite sense that this is from a different age. And and this movie came out 47 years ago. 1974. Yeah, 47 years. Like 47. That's longer than I've been alive. This movie came out before I was alive. Yeah. But I what I like to try to examine is that these movies, even though they're old. If they're well done and they have a good story and they have great acting, they speak to these consistent eternal truths about storytelling. Uh, I and, agree. It, it definitely and, holds up. And if you take a guy like Walter Matthau with that face and that unassuming sense of, uh, he doesn't really carry authority with him, but there's just something about him. I hate using the word likable because that's such a vanilla term and I don't want to reduce characters to oh i liked him or i didn't like him but there is something endearing about Matthau, and even at the very end when <laughs> when, when they're trying to figure out who the motorman was right, and they right. eventually land on balsam mm-hmm. even the way the movie closes it doesn't close with him slapping balsam in cuffs nope. it ends with balsam telling him all right well you got to leave my my apartment yeah. and balsam leaves and then realizes he's the guy and opens the door and it's just sort of that very rubbery face of his smiling at balsam yeah basically balsam sneezed and he sneezed a few times during the uh during the movie and uh he realized that this was the motor man because of the sneeze so he as he was closing the door he sneezes and then he's like aha i got (laughs) you so i mean and that's it there's yeah he played this film like uh, you know what? I mean, I've seen a few Walter Matthau films. I know who he is. And for a person like me and you who've seen a bunch of his films, he, you know, he, there was a, a point in the 70s that apparently he played almost the same type of character in three or four films. I mean, The Odd Couple, he was Oscar Madison. He yep. was he was uh, Lieutenant Zach Garber here in this film. And then he's Buttermaker in Bad News Bears. And if you you know, switch the characters. I bet you you can you you would be hard pressed to figure out which one was which if you mix them up in uh, in these films. Yeah, he definitely plays much like I've said. Vince Vaughn plays Vince Vaughn in yes, every movie. Yes, There's yes. just it's he's Vince Vaughn slightly mm-hmm. with a twist in every right. movie. Yes, and yes. yeah, I think Walter Matthau is one of those types of of actors. Although. Later on in his career, he changes it up. But well, even actually, like grumpy and grumpier old men with uh, the movies he did with Jack Lemmon. He's still Very a wise much, ass in those films, you know. He's still like humor. a rubber, yeah, yeah. a rubber faced, biting, sarcastic wise ass, right, and absolutely. he's good at it. Oh, and yeah. you know, I, I, I just think he's, he, I think him in this role specifically is just one of the most spot on depictions of a New Yorker. And again, he was born in the Lower East Side. He is a New Yorker by birth. He's just. He's just so perfect in this. And I, I agree. I thought this was the perfect New York movie. It really was. I mean, there, there was some violence in it. There was action in it. There's drama. But uh, again, the comedy. And you, I, I read the reviews and people like um, uh, Roger Ebert way back then talking about the, um, you know, the, 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 the humor that gets you through it, that, um, that made it a little bit more of a film than just a regular any old action film. I think one of them said that. So... Uh, 
as far as a New York film goes, this is definitely in the top five that I've seen. So very good. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. It's a, it's a classic New York New York uh, City film. Highly um, recommended. Highly recommended to anybody who's listening. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad you liked it. That's the whole purpose here, right? Is you know, for I, I know, but you know what? Four out of five films that you've given me, or sorry, five out of six films, I thought were really, really great. I mean, but so I mean, I guess I'm, <laughs> I guess I'm due for a doozy at some point. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, eventually I'm going to give you like the Seventh Seal, some Ingmar Bergman uh, oh film <laughs> where it's just two people sitting in a room for four hours. Oh God! What it, that day will come? Can't, can't um, wait! Can't wait! Can't wait! But you know, you know what I could have waited for. Oh, I can! I I, I can't wait to hear what you could have waited for. <laughs> I could have waited another lifetime to watch Avengers: Age of Ultron. Oh yeah! Unfortunately, I think you're gonna. I, I told you you're gonna have questions, but it's probably gonna be more of some very uh, some very pointed statements. So yeah. go. So go ahead. So I. This is the second. No, this is the third uh, Marvel movie you've given me. And again, yes, for, if, yes. you, if you've not been listening to this point, I was a huge comic book fan growing up. I was an absolute nerd. I loved comics. I lived with them. I grew up with them. They were my best friends because I didn't have any real friends. Um, but I never got into the movies. And the last, before starting the podcast, the only other Marvel movie I'd seen was Iron Man. And then it just fell off, and I don't know why. So this is the second uh joss whedon written and directed avengers movie after marvel's the avengers right and i like that movie we yes, we did. did it on the pod i i had a good time i liked it, it i thought it did everything right i, I it, it's a per, it's a great example of what that kind of movie can be right i don't think this is and i agree with you for the most part when you say that um um, you know, if you if you did a little bit of research while watching this film, you'll know that Joss Whedon had a hell of a time putting this film together, and I think, I think this, it right? shows that. I think it shows that. Did, didn't he quit uh, doing Marvel movies after this? He he, he definitely quit. He went uh, he went over to DC. Basically, uh, he uh, he was burnt out. I mean, th these were two huge tentpole films that he did for Marvel. And everybody realized everybody realized how difficult it would it was to get the Avengers film put together after you know the, what they were doing universe building to do it a second time, even though this film marginally did uh, a little worse at the bo a global box office. I think it made like a hundred million dollars less overall. It was. It's definitely considered to be one of the lower tier films in the overall arc of the MCU, and they blame a lot of that on Whedon. And but he puts a lot of that blame on himself also. So, so here's my blame with Whedon. My, my thing with Whedon is I think he occasionally gets near some really interesting ideas, but I think, and this has been my beef with the whole Marvel system of filmmaking from the beginning, and we've discussed it before is I think Marvel forces a particular framework of what works, of what they think works, and what they think their audience wants, and they force it on all these filmmakers. Right. And unless you're someone who is a breakthrough filmmaker like Taika Waititi or Ryan Coogler, and maybe the Russos, um, it's very hard to put your own stamp on these movies. Right, I, I believe so. I believe that's and true. Whedon does it because Whedon's one of the few guys that writes and directs. Like James mm -hmm. Gunn did it with, uh, I think the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, the Guardians. Yeah, mm -hmm. but but Whedon uh, 
is the sole credited writer for the screenplay in both of these movies. And the first one, you get a glimpse of everyone's sort of sense of their style. It's a little lighter. There's a reverent sort of uh, cynical humor to it. And there's biting quips. And it's it's fun. It's exactly right. what you want out of this kind of movie. Right. I, I, this one, man, it, I felt like it was trying to do so much yeah, and go man. in so many directions. And I don't think it, it pulled any of them off. I agree. I agree. I remember seeing this in a film uh, in the movie theaters in Orlando in uh, 2015, and I ended up walking out of there and being a little puzzled about what I had seen because there were quite a few scenes in this film that did not make any sense. It it, it shoehorned in for whatever reason, maybe because they wanted to uh, uh, push the overall Infinity Stones arc part of it which really didn't need to be. Uh, but the, I think at that point they realized what they wanted to do with Thanos. So they sh- uh, shoehorned a few scenes um, alluding to him in there. Did you notice any of that? Yeah. So I was, so I watched these movies really attentively and right. I had a good time watching uh, the Avengers. I had a great time watching uh, the winter soldier mm-hmm. and I take notes and it's, it's, I, I pay attention. Right. Even having said that, I felt like when Vision when Vision shows up, okay, I swear to you, I was watching this movie, I was paying attention. He shows up, and I had no clue how he came to be. Right. I don't know if that's a failure on me, or I, I missed a line of dialogue because there again these these movies are this was was like what two two hours and thirty two two twenty two yeah. I think yeah isn't it um. And every there's something going on all the time, and you have to pay attention. And right. it references so many things that take place that took place before in the other movies, and it's laying the groundwork for what's going to come. And I don't remember an Infinity Stone being referenced until Ultron drops it into that um, ca- that casket that was manufacturing what right. became Vision. Right. So at that point you didn't really know what that was um that was in loki's uh staff it was blue in the staff but once he cracked the outer casing of it it turned out to be the yellow mind stone and the part that i think that you may have missed is the casket that had vision in there that was actually supposed to be uh, ultron's right ultimate form right because they yeah ultron was trying i don't to to achieve some sort of new elevated form of 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 physical existence right to occupy exactly right and well if you notice that he kept on making bodies for himself that were better and better and yes uh, yeah okay so and he was using the vibranium that he stole and uh to, to one make this elaborate i don't know comet bomb asteroid thing that that was basically going to be an extinction level event and also the body that ended up being the vision yes so (laughs) so i i that all makes sense to you when you explain it to me but i think if i can't understand it in the movie and again i think i'm a fairly attentive viewer but my god man when when vision pops out and and also i like paul bettany and and i think bettany so let me segue in, in, into something else. So yeah. you have so many people on the screen, right? There mm-hmm. are so many credited actors in this movie, and they're all good act. Well, they're all stars, right? right. Okay. But it, they get so little time 
to really establish themselves. I think Evans and, and Stark and uh, they they establish who they are, and I think they're good at, at those characters. It's right. Steve Rogers and, and Tony Stark. But you get other characters like Mark Ruffalo is his Bruce Banner is kind of a nothing to me. I don't know why. I like Jeremy Renner as an actor. I right. think he's underutilized. I love him right now in Mayor of Kingstown, right, which is right, a right. terribly bleak, ugly crime show where he just looks tired all the time. I think he fits that perfectly. Someone explain to me what Clint Barton is doing in the Avengers. Well, in the first movie, he played the he played the guy. Like who that, gets that the, my... Right, but in the second film, they realized and listen, it, he he was trying to pull a hand solo here, where he was begging them to kill him off. He says because he didn't want to do, go through being just a minion like he was in the first film, so he was begging them to kill him. And it I would have out, liked it, them to kill him off too. <laughs> well, we didn't did him a favor and pretty much being him the focal point of the entire second third of the film you know where yeah he's you know what it taking does, over it, and it, i'm i'm sorry and again I, I like jeremy renner i think he's underutilized or poorly utilized in a lot of projects mm-hmm. i don't think it worked okay. I, I i don't okay. i didn't get uh linda like linda cardellini i don't know if i was laughing at this line authentically or ironically but when <laughs> she, when she says to him uh you know i totally support all your avenging i'm like <laughs> is, is this where we're at like like I feel like the movie didn't know what it wanted to be, and yet it has to be all of these things. And I, it, it, it you are one hundred percent correct. You are one hundred percent. It has correct. to hit it, certain. Yeah. It, it has to hit all those marks. And by the time we get to the end, I, by the time you get to the final set piece, which is Ultron raising the city of a city in Sokovia, mm-hmm. with the idea of dropping it on the planet in order to create an extension level event, like you said. Right. It just, the action just got so redundant. I felt like it was the Battle of New York all over again in the original Avengers. Only thing is, and again, I say that because it's just individual little shots of all the Avengers fighting off these uh, robots that Ultron has created, which is a lot like uh, what they had to do to the Chitauri in New York. Right, right. Nameless nameless enemies, right. The difference is, Mm -hmm. in New York... It was a place. It was, or, or it was, it was Disney's version of a place that was yeah. probably made on a on a sound on a on a soundstage in Atlanta, right. where they shoot all these movies. Mm-hmm. But it had a sense of familiarity, and the whole the, the creation of Sokovia was just this generic gray Eastern European place mm-hmm. that they needed to fabricate in order to let Ultron drop it out of the sky, and. By the time we get to the final, the the big action set piece at the end, I just didn't care. Yeah. I really didn't. <laughs> Which uh, is a shame because you, you bring know, in, yeah. it, like Don Cheadle shows up again, and I know he was War Machine, and in, in I don't know what he was in. He was in one of what one of the 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 Iron Man movies. Uh, Don Cheadle was the second. He was in the second Iron Man movie. He took over for Terrence Howard after they fired Terrence Howard to give him. Uh, Tony uh, to give him Robert uh, give Robert Downey Jr. the money that they were going to give Terrence Howard. So they took the uh, that's that's what Terrence Howard said. That's why he got fired from the first Iron Man movie. Okay, so that's so Cheeto was in there. I hadn't seen Cheeto. I knew he plays War Machine, but yeah. I hadn't seen any of the movies where he was in. Right. But you get like there's ridiculously good actors in this. Idris Elba shows up for a cup of coffee, and and he's <laughs> and he, awesome. And he, you get, and he hated you doing that, and he hated doing that scene. He hated. He couldn't stand it. He he's hated so good being in the MCU. Scene. I know, I know, but he hated being he's, the MCU. 
Uh, you know, and, and it's a shame because Elba is another guy who probably should have been James Bond, but we'll, we can deal with that another day. <laughs> but yes, again, Stellan Skarsgård shows up again. Linda Cardellini, who I love in Mad Men. She was great in Bloodline. Right. Um, and the best, the best performance in the movie is a guy you don't see. James Spader as Ultron is yes. awesome. Yeah, he is. He but, is great. But everyone else kind of looks like they're they're hitting their marks. They're mm-hmm. saying their lines, and even I don't know. Even uh, Robert Downey Jr. There's like the way I read him is like missing some kind of a little bit of that energy, that spark, that sort of mm-hmm. boyish playfulness that's been there in the other movies I've seen him in. Right, and I don't know if that was by design in the movie because they're la- I know they're laying the groundwork for Civil War in this. Right. right. Oh, very good, very good. Okay, well, that was going to be my point. So, overall, this film not only was more, was darker in tone than the first Avengers movie or other movies in the MCU previous to this, but it was, like you said, uh, laying down the groundwork for Civil War and what would eventually be the um, Infinity War movies that came out a few years later. It was a troubled production from the get-go. Um, How so? It, Whedon was fighting with with the production company, with uh, with Feige. He wanted to use the characters in a certain way, but Feige had other ideas. Now, Whedon says that he would have um, he would have done, he would have put the characters in these uh, in different positions in the films and make them do different things. Feige said no, uh, but. Everybody kind of believes that Feige didn't really know what he was going to do with with the characters in the upcoming films. He had not really fleshed uh, fleshed it out yet, but he knew that it would have been a bit too final the way that Whedon, uh, Whedon's original vision was going to be. Uh, so he decided to really uh, interject a lot, and that caused Whedon all kinds of problems. Whedon basically said that I pretty much bent over and let them do whatever they wanted with my film and it's not perfect but it's all of me in it but it's just not the way that i wanted it to be shown so with regards to the ultimate responsibility for where these stories go and and the the big picture is that solely feige or is that like is there is there to your knowledge is there like a disney sort of or a marvel element that is plotting these story arcs out well in advance or is it It, mostly feige it is feige however um uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that when the first five movies the first phase came out which started in 2008 to 2012 they did not realize one that one it was going to work so they didn't have too much laid out for an overarching theme for 20 movies which what they ended up doing so they had to kind of retcon a few things go back and say okay well the cu- the cube that um, the tesseract was actually one of the st- was one of the infinity stones so you know the ether that was in uh, the thor movie that you didn't see but ended up being the reality stone and so they had to do that and to make it work with what they wanted to do afterwards. Basically, after this film, uh, Feige took away the, the writing powers of the directors. And that included also John Favreau, who also wrote and directed Iron Man. And I, I, don't, I don't think he wrote the second Iron Man, but uh, you know he, he, t- he took that away no. from them and basically made it a committee. So it wasn't going to have just the director having the power like Whedon did. 
You know who is credited the the screen the credited screenplay for Iron Man two? No, who's that? Justin the the actor. Yes, yeah. You know, what? I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yes, and boy, was that a crappy movie. I mean, is that just, the one with um uh Mickey Rourke oh, as Whiplash? Thank you. Yes, it, it it was. It could have been so good, and even Mickey Rourke. You know who's who's Mickey Rourke in two thousand ten? He had one hit movie in twenty years with the Wrestler that came out right before then. So everybody was very very um excited about seeing it was, him in this it was, film. It was the Rourke Renaissance. Yeah, it was the Rourke Renaissance. It didn't, didn't last, last long. Too, yeah, didn't last too long. But he, uh, you know, as Whiplash, he totally missed the mark. But he blames Marvel for that because he's like, "This is what this isn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to make a movie where my my character was going to be more." But they, you know, Marvel had a problem in the first phase of the of the films where they didn't really hit on a lot of the characters the way that uh, they should have. And uh, that caused a problem with a few of the films. But you know what's interesting is that like the movies that kind of step out of the that, that predetermined sense of who everyone is and, and, and throws a little bit of a wrench into it. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy is right. different, yeah. and that succeeded. Right. Uh, my understanding is Thor Ragnarok yes. is a, yes. is a real enjoyable movie, and again, that's different because they realize. And I think you get a bit of it here in this movie with Joss Whedon. Is you start to realize that Chris Hemsworth looks like he might be a really funny actor. Yes, a, a, a little bit, but but they could not use him correctly like Taika Waititi was able to do, where he they let him where they let his natural comedic abilities come out. You still had too much of the Shakespeare that he had in the first two f- uh, films. And it was clashing with the comedy that was there. So it, that was also something that Whedon couldn't get out. But I think that's something that he tried to get out of him. But he he ended up becoming too morose, you know, and it didn't come across very well. Yeah, and you also, Whedon does try to get, like, he, he does try to give everyone a moment. And, you know, you do try to get an emotional moment with uh, with Hawkeye and his wife and sort of the idea that he has a, a life at home. Right. Um, I, again, the, the idea of Hawkeye being an, a necessary part of the Avengers, I think, is ridiculous. When you have literal gods, <laughs> you need you need a dude, who's got a dude with a compound bow. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Oh, that's, but, um, that was the joke. He goes, he goes, uh, you know, we're, we're fighting robots and I have a bow and arrow. None of this yeah, makes sense. <laughs> I That is the line in the movie I appreciated the most. Yeah, it but, it, it yeah. is the most self-aware, yeah. like, hey, this shit is crazy, isn't yeah. it? And what and, am I doing here? <laughs> right. But... It can also work if you sort of lean into that irreverent sort of self-awareness. And I, I, I don't know. Like, I thought I thought it opened poorly. I, you know what You know what threw me right away? Oh, I can't wait to hear this. <laughs> is Whedon, Whedon opens the movie with that one long CGI uh, yep. assault on mm-hmm. the fortress in Wachovia right. where they're, they're getting the... Um, who is the guy that ends up getting killed by... Baron Von Strucker. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, so it opens with that very long shot, and it's super cool in theory, except it looked a little janky and kind of cheap and not really well done. It looked like a it looked like a cutscene in a video game. It was it was a bit much. It, like when you saw it in the movie theater, and I remember seeing it in IMAX. Uh, and of course, with IMAX, if you're not sitting right in the right spot, you're, it gets a little fuzzy on the edges. So of course, I sat on the edges, and uh, that's how it looked to me. Also. Um, it, it looked actually better at home than it does uh, in the in, in the movie theater, but I know what you're saying. I I think that he just couldn't pull off everything he wanted to pull off. 
and and I'm sure making these movies is a is a huge undertaking. There's so many moving parts. There's so many personalities of actors that you've got to manage and and soothe and and massage egos. And there's you know there's so many shot. There's so many different types of computer generated shots and. They are shooting all over the place in terms of, uh, I think, I, I don't know where they shot the train chase in whether or not that was actually Korea, but you did get a vibe that the, that they were in Johannesburg right, at right. one point. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does do a good, it doesn't approach the same sense of authenticity that the Bond movies, and I also said this to you about Fast Five, right. this sense of world hopping. Mm-hmm. Everything in these movies feels a little too clean and a little too polished and a little too lacking a natural sense of authenticity. And it is the opposite of what you get in the taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. Oh, yeah, 100%. They, they couldn't be more different in that, in that regard, absolutely. And, I, I, and again, I liked Avengers, the, the, the first one, and you know the sense of New York. It, it, I, I was on board for that. I had a great time. And this, I thought it just, it didn't, I thought that this is the kind of, that this is an example of these kinds of movies when in addition to telling a story, they also have to build the foundation for three other stories. And, and that is my issue problem. with that's these That's the biggest movies. problem with any of these films. Whenever, whenever you're building a universe and, and, but, but. You know, I say that as if this has been happening for decades. It really hasn't been. You know, how many universes do we really have, uh, cinematic universes do we really have? We have the Bond. We have Star Wars, Star Trek. Harry Potter. Harry Potter up until that point. So, I mean, over, you know, 50 years of the kind of films that you and I will watch, that's five Okay, so so this is the film, and, and I, I believe that any any of those uh, ones that we just uh, named, um, although although Bond, you know, keeps on really starting over and over and over again, a new Bond, uh, you right? Know, it's not it's not one long unending story. Exactly, you know, and Harry Potter. There's that one film that a lot of people don't agree with. Uh, that would be the second one. A lot of people think that one was a little bit too too much of everything. But then there's that one film that uh, turns everything. Uh, 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 the Azkaban. Uh, yes. Uh, I, well, that's what about, I was going to say. It's it's the film that really puts it all together, and you know, it gives it gives weight to the whole uh, to, to the drama of what's happening. You know, people die now, so it you know that's the one that everybody says. Well, the, the shit's getting real. This film, unfortunately, fell short of all of that, and. And and the worst part about it, it is the bridge between the one great the the the, uh, the first Avengers movie, and then what you're gonna eventually see, Jason, is the third installment of the Avengers movies, and you have one great one, one not great one, and then a, a great finish that you almost shouldn't have happened if you just look at it, look at it from this film. You know, it's interesting. You you touched on. And I think you and I are, have Harry Potter on the brain because oh, we yeah. both just watched the reunion. And <laughs> uh, neither of us, I loved it. Neither I loved of us it. cried. <laughs> oh, um, I cried. It's okay. <laughs> but you're, you, what you said makes a lot of sense to me. And that's the reason why I never read the Harry Potter books. But I, I really enjoyed the movies. Is yeah. You do have characters dying. You have characters that mature and grow. And there's an arc. And it's heading towards uh, a conclusion. 
an end point. And my feel with these movies is because they come from comic books and I read comic books that they, those stories never ended, right? Comics just always kept going and going. The characters live Peter forever. Parker's, no one ages. Yeah. Yeah. Peter Parker's no one, 30 years old. <laughs> yeah, no one ages in, in a comic book because they're not real. Right. And you can sort of just live with those characters forever. They become part of your life. Right. And the issue I have, I think, with these Marvel movies is there never feels like there's going to be real stakes. Like Game of Thrones did that to us at the end of the first season right. where, yeah. and we should have seen it coming because Sean Bean w- <laughs> was in it and he dies and everything. So everything. we should have known everything. the minute he rides out in the first episode that he was going to get killed. Yeah. But it, it gave you a sense that no one is safe. And my issue with these movies is I feel like everyone is wearing plot armor. And even... Again, I haven't seen Infinity War, but I know or end, uh, what uh, Endgame. I haven't seen well, I haven't seen either of them, but I know what happens, right, and I know exactly. the snap happens, right, exactly. and I also know that after the snap, everyone comes back. Of course, of course, but 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 at least you're going into it with that knowledge. But but I, what I'm what when you do get to see those films, I want you to say it was done well. I mean, that's what I think you're going to end up saying because the story. And the stakes become something that it's it, it's going to mean something. It, it really is, and that's really why I wanted you to watch these films because I want you I want you to see where it started and where it ended, and to actually feel something. And and bringing up Harry Potter, you know, well, the one thing is that it, it are very similar is that you kind of grew up with the Harry Potter the kids. Uh, much younger than us, grew up with Harry Potter between 2001 to 2011 when the second movie, uh, when the last movie came out, 10 years. So a a kid at at age 10 to 20, what a huge jump. But the same amount of time passed with these Marvel movies where you had kids growing up with Iron Man. So they see the progression. And while the stakes have not gotten to that point just yet, like they did in the uh, Azkaban uh, Harry Potter movie, it's coming, and I wanted I wanted this movie to start showing that, and they didn't. And I know that you don't have that sense just yet, but you know it's coming. Yeah, and I know it's coming, but again, it, it's it's one of these. It, it's almost like, unfortunately, I don't know how to care that yeah, much. It, it's it's a big miss. It, it really was a big miss. And I, and I watched this movie again recently. And of course, there are a couple of parts, uh, parts that I like more than others. It's a big miss. Uh, the, the one thing that they really do well is they start sowing the seeds of discord amongst the the Avengers, specifically Captain America and Iron Man. And, you know, they're having the uh, the Macho Man uh, um Woodcutting episode on the on the Barton farm, and you know Cap just rips it apart with his hands, and you know he's pissed off and at what Iron Man has been doing, and uh, and and that's what you're going to see is uh, going to lead to eventually civil war and uh, and and the uh, Infinity War movies. Yeah, and I I could see all the all the stones being set in in place, and I right. I'm okay with that. Like right. I don't mind, and again I didn't mind it in the first Avengers movie. I thought it went well, but. In this, I just thought it didn't work. But speaking to like comic book movies as a as a bigger uh, in a bigger sense, right. um, so a friend of ours sent us a tweet that uh, this is a quote from Alan Moore. Um, <laughs> Alan Moore, who wrote Watchmen, oh, yeah. V for Vendetta, mm-hmm. and Alan Moore's a an interesting cat. He's like an avowed uh, anarchist. He's very um, uh, 
I don't want to say extreme in his positions, but he has uh, pos- political positions and a view on the world that is probably not the mainstream. Um, not. So he said something in an interview in 2020 um, regarding comic book movies. <clears throat> and I quote, <laughs> most people equate comics with superhero movies now. That adds another layer of difficulty for me. I haven't seen a superhero movie since the first Tim Burton Batman. They have blighted cinema and also blighted culture to a degree. Several years ago, I said I thought it was a really worrying sign that hundreds of thousands of adults were queuing up to see characters that were created 50 years ago to entertain 12-year-old boys. That seemed to speak to some kind of longing to escape the modern, to escape from the complexities of the modern world. Okay. So... <laughs> I don't I don't I don't disagree with what he's saying. I disagree with his meaning behind it. I don't find it to be a problem to escape from the realities of the world for two and a half hours. I, I, I don't see a problem there. I don't see a problem with trying to I, I don't know, relive a part of my youth that I truly, truly enjoyed. I know that you enjoyed comic books also. We have friends that we talk to about these. I have friends. Not, you know, not we. I have friends that I still talk to about this. My, my friend James, who has his own podcast, uh, you know, we talk about this all the time. He listens to ours and he tells me what he thinks about the the comic movies that you that you uh, that you review, and he he agrees with a lot of what you say. But there is still joy to be found in these films. And that's why they're successful. And I don't believe in Alan Moore's most of it, what he says, to be quite honest, because he's a he's an old codger. And you know what? As brilliant as he is, he's too miserable to really be happy in anything. That's my that, take that, on Alan Moore. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is we're never going to have Alan Moore as a guest on the pod. I don't. I, not after this one. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sure somewhere Alan Moore is very upset right now that he will never be on this show. <laughs> hey, but, 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 but we've seen. You know, I, I, I like his work, uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Viva Vendetta. You know, he does great, brilliant work, has been, since the since Swamp Thing in the 1980s, uh, another great comic book that my friend James enjoys. But what does he? Uh, what else does he give us? What, what, what do I care what Alan Moore has to say about what comics are good and what's not? I, I mean, listen, I guess- you know, you're the one who says, Jason, you're the one who says, Obviously, they're doing something right. It's not just about the money because there are people out there that truly care about these characters. And and, and, well, and the actors know it. Yeah, well, there I might push back a little bit on you. Like, again, in, in this era of literally you can watch anything that's ever been made from right. your home right. at the push of a button, there's enough space for everyone in the sandbox. But I would say that if these movies did not generate the the dollars they generate, we would not see as many of them as we or to the to the level of um, corporate involvement in them. I I think you know you wouldn't have the amount of money thrown at them. God knows how much money Robert Downey Jr. got to play Iron. Do you know? I I've never looked. Yeah, uh, fifty million dollars for this to give away for, for Ultron. <laughs> just wait hang on he got 55 zero for this single film i'm almost uh almost certain that his contract called for 50 million uh ultron hold on i'm looking it up right now but i'm almost positive that's what i read the other day that uh wow. he uh his car his uh, contract was actually up at the end of uh iron man 3 and he had been speaking about actually leaving the character. So 
they uh, wanting to get Age of Ultron off, they uh, ended up giving him quite a bit of money. <laughs> well, so, I mean, more power yeah, to him yeah, then. But yeah. I, I don't think you know if these movies didn't make as much money as they did, it wouldn't be this would these movies would not be getting done for the love of the art. Like these movies exist in the form that they currently are in. They exist because of the amount of money they make, and because there are hundreds of thousands of 50-year-olds queuing up to go see these movies over and over and over again. And I, listen, I'm not faulting. I'm not saying some, that they shouldn't be made or that you know no one should go watch these. I, I, that's, that's ridiculous. I would never say that about anything. But, you know, I just... I, I don't know. I hope wh- whatever one you make me watch next... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hope is a rebound from this. It uh, is. It is. Again, I, you're, I love, you're, you're gonna love it. I, I I love Spader, and again, it's. I think it says something. What does it say about the quality of a movie when the the best performance, or I shouldn't say the best. It's not a, my my assessment is not definitive. My favorite performance in a movie is by a guy you don't see on screen. I think that it shows that he is a great great actor, and. Um, while I don't think that the other characters were mailed in by the actors, I think that the overall story and the way it was put together kind of left them all hanging. You know that supposedly Whedon's original cut was like three hours, he says. Yes, yes, I know. So why, why haven't we released the Whedon cut? You know, nobody ever cared to really say that like they did about Snyder. Honestly, you know, I watched, I, you, know yeah. you, you and I, I think we both watched all four hours of yeah, the Justice League and, cut. And loved every minute of it. Uh, I liked it. Oh, it, come I, on. I remember you I, saying that you that you enjoyed it, it. it. I enjoyed it, but my that's another case of that movie. This, it suffers, all these comic book movies suffer from the same general issue. At the end, there has to be a ridiculous over-the-top battle to save the universe it almost always involves heroes fighting generic non non-distinct uh red shirts and right. <laughs> and i just lose interest give me you know give me the, the winter soldier ending was i i like that a lot you know mm-hmm. give, give me something like that and i'm on board with it make it a little small that's why i like batman because batman traditionally is smaller stakes and mm-hmm. I just I when you make when you make every movie about saving the world it gets fatiguing and that's what I came out of this I felt tired and okay. I was and I lost okay. interest well but the next one you see when uh, when I do give it to you will not have uh, a world saving bent to it um, it will just be uh, well you know what you know what's funny one of the things that this film definitely did not have that Avengers had I felt it didn't have the same heart as the and that's an easy word to put yeah. out there but you definitely feel that i mean you could tell when a movie is being genuine and um it, it, it has the heart to really tell a story the right way this one it was slap shot put together and it missed it missed the, yeah. the, the heart mark for me on this yep. film yep. i agree and I, I think you feel it and i think you read it so well now now you got me all interested okay. uh okay. what are you giving me next Okay, so we, well, you know, uh, I don't give you back-to-back Marvel movies, uh, although I'd love to, but no. We are going to take this back to the 
Days of 2020. And uh, this is a film that you and I and our friend on our thread, Colin, has spoken about. And you guys made fun of me. <laughs> you guys made fun of me during the pandemic about this film. I'm and, concerned. And I love this film. And this film got very good reviews for what it was. And, um, you know, I, there are interviews, there there are articles out there about this is the film ye- that you need to watch during the pandemic. You're going to watch Greenland okay. but with uh, Gerard oh Butler. Oh, my God. Gerard Butler? Gerard Butler's Greenland. Sweet and Jesus. Yes, yes. And, oh, uh, my you know, God. It's, it's an uh, end-of-the-world story. but uh, oh, I know, don't like those stories. I know. I know you don't. And, you know, Michael Bay has no part of this. And I promise you, and I promise you that Who? you will come back to me and you will say, this was better than Armageddon. I promise well, you. that's not saying much. Oh, you're right. You're right. I'm well, looking up who Rick, Rick Roman Waugh. I think I'm pronouncing his name wrong. I do not know this director, but mm-hmm. I will look him up. Oh, he he made Shot Caller. That was yeah. an interesting movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, okay. I, I th- I'm I'm challenging you with this film, and I think that you are going to have fun with it. And w- when you take back, when you take into consideration when it was made, what was going on in the world. I think you're going to say that this was a pretty good film for what it was. All right. So, uh, Greenland, Greenland, the Gerard Butler classic. apocalyptic action or a classic already. That, yeah. All right. Yeah. Challenge accepted. I will right. accept that. Very um, good. So, for you, I told you earlier, I didn't have a movie in, in mind. I think you really give a lot of time into what you're going to assign me. Oh, I have, um, a, list for, I have a list for you on my, on my, uh, my phone. Every time I think of something, I'm, I want to write it down so I don't forget it. I have a mental list that I keep. Anytime I see a movie that is is weird or odd, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to make Arca watch this. Um, I've mostly given you older movies, right. and uh, I think I should probably give you something a little more modern. Okay. So during the pandemic in 2021, I saw, well, during, we're still in it. Uh, one of the first movies I went back to a theater to see was The Card Counter with okay. Oscar Isaac. Are you aware of this? Um I do like Oscar Isaac because he's definitely one of the better actors of the last uh, 10 yes. years, but I don't really know good. this particular film. All right. Oscar Isaac plays a uh, plays a gambler, and it's written and directed by Paul Schrader, who okay. was the guy that wrote uh, Taxi Driver, and he's been writing and making disturbing movies about lonely, uh, damaged men for about 40 years. Okay. So uh, all I'm going to say is uh, Oscar Isaac playing a gambler in uh, The Card Counter. It was one of my favorite movies that came out in 2021. Okay. Wow. So we got two, uh, we each got two minutes. Uh, challenge accepted. Very good. All right. Okay. So that, that's gonna, that, that'll be it for this week. Again, uh, Age of Ultron and uh, Taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3. Yeah. Uh, I, hey, I, even- I highly recommend Taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3. Jason obviously will not recommend Age of Ultron. I will not, but I'm, again, there were three billion people have already seen it, so they don't need any more of my money. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, they don't need your money. (laughs) So, uh, all right, uh, hopefully neither of us get sick like I got sick at the end of 2021, and what we're hoping to do is be consistent every Monday. Hit that subscribe button. We will put out a new episode every Monday, and uh, hopefully you will see some movies as a result of this podcast you wouldn't have otherwise the same way Arco and I are seeing movies. 
fantastic. And this is going to be our year, Jason. Trust me. Right. I'm I'm sure it will. So yeah. uh, again, everyone out there, thank you for listening. And um, I'm Jason. And I am Marco. And that was Movie Challenge Accepted. See you next time. Take care.